Welcome to Inside the NCAA. I'm Greg Johnson, Associate Director of Communications at the National Office. On Wednesday, the, the Division I Council approved moving the 2020 Fall NCAA Championships to the spring of 2021. And to provide insight on this decision and other aspects of the Council meeting, I'm joined today by uh, Grace Calhoun, who's the Chair of the D1 Council and also the Director of Athletics at the University of Pennsylvania. Grace, thanks for joining me today. Greg, happy to be with you, and thanks for having me. And you guys had a very busy day on Wednesday, and uh, I guess the first question for you is, uh, could we talk about the um, just moving the fall championships, uh, the Division One fall championships to the spring, and just what the philosophy was behind that from the membership to uh, conduct these championships later on this academic year? Absolutely. It was a super busy day, but I think a very successful day all around. So you might recall that the um, Championships Oversight Committee and uh, the Council began talking about the ability to host these championships and preserving all flexibility. So thinking about potentially conducting them in the spring was something that we discussed well before we knew whether or not the fall would be viable. So we wanted to ensure maximum flexibility and preserving all all options. Uh, when it became clear that uh, we had fallen below 50% sponsorship of the, the conferences and that the fall was no longer uh, available as an option for those championships, right away uh, began thinking about the spring. But we had a few uh, inherent challenges, obviously. The, the, the fact that now uh, the NCA will be sponsoring winter, spring, and fall championships, all in a period of the traditional spring semester for universities. And uh, obviously in the COVID environment, travel is more difficult. Uh, these uh, championships will be far more costly because of all the of the safety precautions and testing. So we knew we had to strike some, some balance and uh, models were looked at at the 50% of uh, the typical bracket size sponsorship uh, versus 75%. And I think we were all really pleased that we were able to uh, forward uh, to the board for, for next week's uh, decision uh, models with a 75% bracket size that really strike that balance of continuing to give uh, all conferences access through automatic qualification while uh, still giving as many at large teams the opportunity to qualify for the championship. So we really felt it was a, a great compromise and very pleased with the ending point. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, bracket sizes. Just for our audience, uh, just an example would be like the women's volleyball championship normally has a 64-team bracket, and this spring it's going to be a 48-team bracket. So just to give everybody an example of that, um, I know there was a lot of discussion at the competition oversight committee level about uh, just the uh, field size and how we were going to populate the composition of the bracket. Uh, could you talk about just the automatic qualifiers and then the at-large selections? I know that that was a uh, thoroughly debated issue. <laughs> 
It sure was. And uh, I, I have to do uh, a shout out to Linda Teeler in the, the Championships Oversight Committee, along with Vice President Joni Comstock and the NCA uh, Championships team. Uh, they, they have been uh, so involved and, and thoughtful in their deliberations of, of how to, uh, to move this forward. But um, I, I think what the, the membership um, kept going back to is the fact that championship access and the opportunity to participate in championships is, is really one of the primary reasons that we have a national association. So even though we are in a year where everything is, is atypical, um, the opportunity to preserve that automatic qualification for conferences was, was so important and um, keeping the bracket size at 75 percent uh, as you outlined for for volleyball going from 64 to 48 uh, still leaves the opportunity for a good number of at-large uh, births in each championship so again we know it's it's not what we'd love to have um, certainly not ideal but uh, I think a, a really solid compromise knowing all the challenges of hosting these championships and and we also um, had plenty of conversation about reduced number of sites and just um, all the extra protocols and keeping these sites as, as safe as possible. So um, again, lots of compromise was necessary, but I do think this represents the best balance we could construct considering the circumstances. Um, you know, we talked about, you know, moving the championships. Uh, one of the things, aspects of this is uh, the fall student athletes are going to retain some eligibility uh, just because this is so unusual, <laughs> the uh, times we're living in. Um, could you just elaborate a little more on just the importance of why we're having these championships move to the spring and just not say, okay, let's just call it a wash and then we're going to just move on and just why we're, why we're having these. Well, we have started every conversation uh, talking about flexibility, adaptability, just how we um, help um, every institution make decisions that are in the best interest of campus and, and their student athletes. And while we're, we're pleased uh, to have proposals now in front uh, of the, the board of directors for next week uh, with these uh, fall championships, Moving to the spring, we still understand and, and fully anticipate that the majority of student athletes are going to stay on their uh, typical academic plan. They, um, even though it's fully flexible and um, they, they can get the season of eligibility back, the majority won't do that. They'll continue with their academic program and, and graduate in, in four years and go off to their, their careers. So giving um, the best opportunity we can in the here and now, while also preserving the, the, the opportunity for those who, who might believe that um, a, a gap year or some time away is best for them or maybe uh, continuing to practice but not competing this year. So it really goes back to that underlying belief that we have to provide maximum flexibility to allow all institutions, um, all programs, but most importantly, all student-athletes to make decisions that they feel are in their best interest. Hey, uh, obviously, 
one of the uh, most popular sports that we have is basketball. Uh, everybody was uh, very excited to see for Division One men's and women's basketball that the start date for first game will be November 25th. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about that decision and why we pushed the date back from the original November 10th to 15 days later, November 25th? So we started uh, on Monday of this week with a two-hour call with all of the NCAA Council reps and all 32 commissioners, and this got a lot of discussion and followed by yesterday's council meeting where, again, a lot of discussion uh, because we, we once again are trying to balance um, all interests, all factors, and arrive at the best possible conclusions. But the reason that November 25th ultimately got uh, the three quarters majority support that was required with emergency legislation um, fell back to a couple factors. I think the, the most compelling data that we considered was the fact that an estimated 75% of Division I institutions will have either concluded their fall semester by the Thanksgiving break or will spend the rest of the semester in virtual instruction. So the fact that we'll be starting the, the basketball competitive season at a time where our campuses will be depopulated and uh, there will hopefully be the lowest um, chance of, of infection uh, was certainly important to us. And then we talked about other things like the, the fact that uh, for the schools that are competing in football, we've always said that hosting a home football game and a home basketball game on the, the same day is, is a lot in normal circumstances, but um, really just thought to be extremely extremely problematic in the COVID environment. So we, we've taken it off of, uh, you know, that, uh, that Saturday potentially is the start. And again, it was just a, a look at how we balance as many interests as possible. Testing is uh, expected to be um, increasingly prevalent as the, the semester goes by. So it's a two-week reduction, and it came along with a uh, reduction by four contests, uh, thinking that the average uh, team plays about an average of two games a, a week. Uh, so uh, a, a framework that at least gets us started and sets that, that national standard and hopefully again uh, what we'll we'll find is that it's it's really it's it's a, a small reduction for the opportunity to set our teams up for the best chance of success and in going into their seasons. Hey one of the things I really wanted to touch on with you was the uh, legislation regarding uh, you know student athletes ceasing athletic activities after the November 1st, the first Tuesday after November 1st, where they uh, can do civic engagement, they can exercise their rights as citizens to vote. Um, could you just talk about that legislation and uh, why that was so important to the association? Well, I am so proud of our student athletes, uh, not, not just locally, but when we look at the national SAC and the tremendous leadership, uh, the, this has been uh, a, an initiative that's uh, certainly been something that has been uh, promoted heavily from, um, you know, the weeks following all, all 
of the social, racial unrest and uh, the, the, the fact that they put it forward, not just as a one time, let's take election day off this year and ensure we maximize the vote and getting our young people out and active, but that it, it will stay a day off in perpetuity. So it's not just focused on getting out to the polls and exercising their, their right to vote, but um, the opportunity to be civically engaged and uh, promoting local service and an involvement. So uh, again, our, our student athletes show tremendous leadership and our, our student athlete uh, leaders who serve on the council, they're just so bright and articulate. And every time I, I hear them speak, um, I'm, I'm just so proud of their, their leadership and, and how they're, they're guiding student athletes forward nationally to really take a stance and be vocal. Uh, one of the the lifebloods, obviously, of this of college athletics is bringing in the new recruiting class. Uh, this COVID nineteen pandemic has just wreaked havoc with that aspect of college sports. Uh, the council voted yesterday to extend the dead period, the recruiting dead period, where there's no in person contact between the coaches and the prospective athletes uh, through January one. Um, can you just talk about those decisions and? Um, just why we're we're at the we reached that conclusion. Absolutely, uh, and I'll I'll say that uh, not only chairing the council right now, but I happen to be the parent of a high school senior and a high school junior, <laughs> so I'm, I'm uniquely aware of these these challenges. And uh, we have have not taken these discussions lightly from the the outset. Uh, the council leadership group, the coordination committee, had been looking at the data regularly and to this point uh, doing extensions on a short-term basis so it was virtually month to month in extending the dead period and we really had a robust conversation around what best served the membership if we continued with these short-term extensions or if thinking of a, a longer extension made sense and what what we ultimately um, unified around as a council was the fact that we're going into a period where more of our teams are going to start competing and we have to give them every opportunity of success and we know that the, the way to do that is to, to really have uh, very solid um, testing protocols and contact tracing and minimizing uh, contact with, uh, with, with individuals who are not in those, uh, those testing protocols. So as much as our, our coaches want that in-person contact and as much as so many of the, the coaching associations now would like to get back to in-person recruiting we acknowledged that it the environment just still is not at the point where um, for health and safety purposes it makes sense so it's prioritization of the health and safety of the current student athletes and getting their competitive seasons um, to be launched as successfully as possible, while um, continuing to encourage our coaches to utilize the uh, virtual platforms for recruiting. Um, I think our, our prospects and our coaches are really figuring this out. Um, it's happening, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a change, but I think it's happening relatively effectively. And 
we'll continue to reassess. And our hope is, you know, certainly at the first opportunity where we feel that greater travel um, is is safer to do and, and we can get back to in-person recruiting, we certainly want to get there. Hey, one last question. I mean, you're the director of athletics at Penn. <laughs> you're the chair of the uh, D1 council. Just the, uh, could you just talk about personally, just how you've handled those dual roles in leadership and just how has this been for you personally just to go through all this? Yeah, I think it's been a journey like everyone else. And uh, while well, you, you mentioned athletic director and uh, chairing the council right now, uh, I think my my most important role, and all of you can relate, uh, during COVID had, has been uh, being a mother of four and trying to help a family, you know, through this remote environment, uh, sometimes just juggling the um, the online school. My kids are still all in, in virtual school. I've got two high schoolers, a middle schooler, and a first grader, so trying to juggle the demands of, of online school with that, um, you know, it's, it's been a lot for all of us, but uh, I, I think we've, we've looked at it and said, you know, we just have to be committed to making best decisions we can with the information at the time, knowing that this environment has been so dynamic and, you know, it's just the layers and layers of challenges, but this is the time where, where we owe it to our young people to really um, step up and give our best leadership to these difficult circumstances. Um, I, I am blessed to have a job that I absolutely adore and I'm blessed to be in a role um, with this NCA council where I'm working with these amazing colleagues around the country and we're all passionately working in support of trying to get um, a return to uh, to sports and uh, you know getting these opportunities uh, to be as as full and meaningful as possible with with all these you know layers of, of extra precautions and knowing that you know things won't won't be normal uh, you know for for some time but it's absolutely a, a labor of love and uh, I, I really have so enjoyed it because of the uh, Ability to, to to work with colleagues toward these these shared goals of uh, giving our young people the experiences that we know holistically develop them and make their college education so rich. Well, Grace, good luck to you and your family. Um, Want to thank you again for uh, taking out the time to join us today. You provided a lot of insight uh, into the uh, decision making process of the NCAA. And uh, for Inside the NCA, I'm Greg Johnson, and thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thank you.